Judges chapter number 3. Going to be looking at a message this morning. Been looking forward to preaching to you entitled, Unlikely Heroes. One of the finest films I have seen on courage and character is Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. If you haven't seen that movie, it's tremendous. And you need to do yourself a favor and, and find it. But it tells a story in that film of one of America's great heroes, a man named Desmond Doss. Now just by going with the appearances, you wouldn't have thought Desmond Doss to have the heart of a soldier. First off, he was scrawny. He was undersized to go into infantry. He stood just five feet eight. He was about 140 pounds soaking wet. And secondly, he was a committed Seventh-day Adventist, which means, if you know anything about their faith, he was a pacifist. He would not even hold a weapon, much less fire another one at a human being. But when World War II broke out, Desmond Doss wanted to do his part. He wanted to serve his country. And so he enrolled, enlisted, if you will, in the medical corps as a medic. His mantra was to save lives rather than to take lives. But because he was different, because he had a conscientious objector status, boot camp was rather difficult for Mr. Doss. He was constantly threatened. He was all the time harassed by fellow soldiers who thought he was a weakling and a coward because uh, he wasn't fighting the way they were. Many of the other recruits actually tried to get him transferred out of their unit and some berated and even threw objects at him when he bowed his head for prayer. But many who served with Desmond Doss would end up owing him a debt of gratitude before the war was over. Because if you've read the book about his life or you've seen the movie, you know what happens in late April of 1945. A 26-year-old Desmond Doss and his battalion are called to fight on that rocky outcrop, that forsaken island of Okinawa, one of the bloodiest campaigns in the Pacific theater of war. They had to scale cargo nets up a 400-foot-high cliff to reach a plateau where the Japanese soldiers were well fortified and well dug in, and all of them committed to fighting to the death. The battle was intense to say the least, and the Americans sustained heavy casualties, and they were actually forced to retreat down the cliff and back to base camp, except for one man. There was one man who stood and stayed there on the battlefield. It was Desmond Doss, the only medic to help the wounded. And over the span of a 24-hour period, we're told that Desmond Doss went to the injured one by one, littered across the battlefield there on Okinawa, and he pulled them back, made a makeshift improvised rope sling, and lowered them down that cliff. And as he rescued one, he would pray over and over again, Lord, just let me get one more man. Lord, let me get one more man. And when the dust settled in a 24-hour period of being the only American up there doing a work, he rescued 75 soldiers. Many of those men were those who served with him in boot camp and berated him for his faith. But for his unparalleled courage under fire, Desmond Doss was later given the highest honor that any soldier could be awarded by our country, the Medal of Honor. He was also awarded the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. Of course, what made him different was his deep faith in God. 
And I tell you that story this morning to say that a hero is not always the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest. We know that man looks on the outside, but God looks upon the heart. And that story is a great segue to introduce Judges chapter 3 because this chapter is filled with unlikely heroes like Desmond Doss who were out of step with their times but in step with God. I'm talking about leaders, men and women, who gave God their all and who had the courage to dare to be different. And so in Judges chapter 3 today, as we continue our study, we're going to meet three of these what I call unlikely heroes. They were God's men called at a dark time in history to raise up the banner of Jehovah and fight against the oppressors of God's people. They are Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Now these first three judges you're going to notice are about as different as three men could be. And that's because God isn't stuck on a one-size-fits-all mold for His leaders. Many times you'll notice as you study the great men and women of faith in the Scriptures, uh, their backgrounds are very different, their talents are very different, their gift set is unique, and that's because God doesn't pull His leaders off of an assembly line. He shapes them, He molds them one by one according to the unique perspective and gifts that He has given them. And God loves variety, and that's why He picks people to serve Him from all different walks of life. I love what Warren Wiersbe wrote about this chapter in Judges 3. Here's what he said. He said, quote, When God goes to war, He usually chooses the most unlikely soldiers, hands them the most unusual weapons, and accomplishes through them the most unpredictable results. So, Let's look at these unlikely heroes today. The first one we meet in Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. His name is Othniel. And I think that Othniel teaches us the lesson today of God's deliverance through dependence. Now, what you're going to notice as we begin to read here is that Othniel begins his career as Israel enters into one of those sin cycles. Remember, there's six of them in this book. Well, here's the first one. You see sin, you see slavery, you see supplication, and then you see salvation. Notice what verse 7 says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the land of Cushon Rishiathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushon Rishathim, eight years. So you see there that Israel has been oppressed by this king of Mesopotamia. I won't pronounce his name again because he is a mouthful, but if you study the origin of his name and the meaning of it, the title there is not Your Highness, but Your Wickedness. He was a wicked, despotic ruler over the people at that time. And don't you know that the darkest night brings out the brightest stars? And that's what God was doing when He raised up this man named Othniel, who we see emerges in verse 9. And the first attribute that the Bible points out about him is his ancestry. Look what verse 9 says. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger 
brother. So as we learn about Othniel, there's not a whole lot in the Scripture of his life, but we do understand that he came from good stock. The Bible says that he was related to another hero in the Hebrew Hall of Faith, a man named Caleb, who you will recall, if you go back to the book of Joshua, he was one of Joshua's mighty men. And Caleb, as we learn from Joshua, was not one to back down from a fight. In fact, in Joshua chapter 14, at the age of 85, Joshua was given his allotment to settle there in the promised land, and Caleb requested from Joshua, he was given a blank slate, you could claim any part of the land that you want, and Caleb at 85 said, Give me the mountain, give me the hard ground and the high ground that's overrun with all of the heathens, uh, the people known as the Anakim. He said, Give me the pleasure of driving them out. Give me the hard job to do. And friend, I think that's instructive to us today because we need men and women of God who will dream big dreams for God and say, God, I've got a mountain-sized dream. I can't do it alone. Lord, I need you. I'm asking you today, what's your mountain? What are you pointing at? What are you asking God to do and God to move in your life? That's the kind of stock that Othniel was from. He grew up in the shadow of a man like Caleb. He studied his life. He was impressed by his courage, his grit, his resolve. He had the benefit of knowing this man up close and personal. What a challenge that is to us today to be men and women of courage because, friend, these are dark days. These are uncertain times. The world's not moving closer toward utopia. And there's another generation looking at your life and looking at my life and they're wondering, is there anything real about this God that we serve? Is there anything to this Word of God? Oh, is Jesus real to mom and dad, aunts, uncles, the preacher, and the church? I'm telling you, the younger generation is looking at us today because they are going to be facing battles in the future and they're going to be learning from us. So what kind of example are we setting today, church? I love what Billy Graham said on this. He said, quote, Courage is contagious. And when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's exactly what Caleb was in the life of this deliverer named Othniel. And so we see in verse 9 his ancestry. And I'm thankful today that I have a spiritual ancestry that I can look back in my family and say I had a daddy who prayed. I had a mama who believed God. I have a spiritual heritage. And that's one of the greatest gifts of men and women that you can give your children and your grandchildren a legacy of faith to say, I, I fought my battle. I ran my race. I asked God to give me the mountain. And He gave me victory. That's who Othniel was. That was his background. We see his ancestry, but then... Here's the real thing that set him apart. Verse 10 and verse 11. Notice this, his anointing. The Bible points out, verse 10, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. And he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan, Rishiathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishiathim, so that the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. As you begin to study the, this first judge that emerges on the scene, Othniel is set apart because while the majority of the nation is bowing down to the Baals and the Asheroth, while they're serving the false gods 
of the people around them, we understand that he was different. The rest of them went left, he went right. He had the Spirit of God resting upon his life, verse 10 says. That's the difference maker, friend. Keep in mind that in the Old Testament economy that the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers as He does today in the church age. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God temporarily came upon a servant to empower them to accomplish a task. And, and that's our understanding there of verse 10. But His strength, notice this, the deliverance came to the nation because He was dependent. Because he was weak and he relied on the Spirit of God to help defeat Israel's enemy. This is the opposite of the way the flesh operates, right? We always want to go back to our sinful flesh, our intelligence, our will, our gifts, our talents, our strengths. And many times in the church we will try and serve God based on our flesh and not relying on the Spirit of God. This is what set up the difference in Othniel's life. Yet we see here, this man was just one man, and yet he is able to lead his people to a conquest, a victory. And the Bible says that the land had rest for 40 years. You know, Jesus told us in John 15, He said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sometimes I don't think we believe that in the modern church. Because we begin to rely on our charisma, or on our leadership, or on our worship team, or on our technology, or on the presentation. How glossy and good can we make it look with our lights and our fog and all the things that we think we have to rely on. But Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. The only thing that Othniel had to depend on in his day was the Spirit of God that had come upon him to do a difficult task that nobody else was willing to do nor had the ability to do without God's help. I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, quote, A man trying to do the work of God without the anointing of God is like trying to sail across the Atlantic with no wind. There are many in the church who are talented Eloquent, dynamic, smart. They are head and shoulders above the crowd. But I'm telling you, they don't have the thing that really counts. And that is the anointing of God. Every day I'm praying, God, give me your touch. God, give me your anointing. Lord, I'm nothing without you. I can't preach with power. I can't be used by you. Lord, I fail on my face. Uh, the church will crumble. Lord, I need you. That's the spirit that we also have to have within us today if we're going to turn back the darkness and see God move and do something in our generation. We have to be dependent on the Spirit of God. Is He enough? The Bible says that He is. Do we believe it? Friend, listen to me. I'd rather be poor and outnumbered and out of step with the world and simple and unknown in the eyes of many and yet have the touch of God on my life and ministry than all those other things that people look at, degrees and accomplishments and worldly success. Hey, you can throw all that away. Just give me the touch of God. Just give me the Holy Spirit and His power that comes with it. If I have that in the Word of God and the Spirit of God, it'll be enough, the Bible says, to do something the likes of which a generation has never witnessed. You see, we have to realize that if we're going to be delivered, 
from our darkness, delivered from our place today that we're in, our problems that are besetting us, as we go back to the simplicity of this, that really we're helpless, we're weak, we can't do it. We need the Spirit of God to break our hearts and to infill us and help us in our day. You see, there's some things that only the Spirit of God can give a man or a woman of God. I'm talking about the supernatural favor. I'm talking about power, unction, clarity, wisdom, liberty, an open door. Those things are the hallmarks of the anointing of God on a life. God, give me that anointing. Lord, will you pour out a double portion on me? God, if you can use me, Lord, I'm available to you today. Othniel, he didn't have much going on for him outwardly, did he? He was one man. His people were oppressed. He didn't even have good weapons to fight, this book says. But he did have the one thing that nobody else in Israel had. He had the Spirit of God on him. And friend, I'm telling you, uh, let's get back to the basics. Let's ask God to anoint us and use us. Let's get hungry for Him and for His Spirit. This is what captivated Peter and John in Acts 4 when they stood and preached in front of the Sanhedrin. They perceived, the Bible said, that these were unlearned and educated men, but they had been with Jesus. Oh my goodness. Lord, we need a fresh anointing. We cannot borrow from yesterday. Come and feed us, Holy Spirit. Teach us of Jesus, His will, and His way. You see, the world may look at us today much like Othniel. They say, oh, your church is small. Oh, your church is full of poor, uneducated people that have no fame, have no worldly pull in their life, have no power and prestige. There's no VIPs in that church. And that all may be true. Our resources may be limited according to man's perspective. But I'm telling you, when you get God's people together and they're filled by the Holy Spirit, you better Katie bar the door because they turn the world upside down in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And I'm asking God to do it again in this generation to drive back the darkness. God, give us a church full of oath nails upon whom rests the Spirit of God. That was Othniel. He teaches us deliverance through dependence. You know, there was another great unlikely hero of the faith years ago. His name was William Wilberforce. I don't know if you ever read about him, but much like us, he had a dual nature. By outward appearances, he was sickly. He was a diminutive figure. He suffered through his whole life, listen to this, with colitis. He was actually a drug addict. He battled opium, which was prescribed to him for his pain relief from the colitis. Before his conversion to Christ in eight, at age 25, he lived a rich playboy life of gambling and drinking. But you know what happened to William Wilberforce? He got saved. God got a hold of him, cleaned him up. And yet, William Wilberforce entered the fight of his day for what he said was the greatest human rights issue of all time, and that was the slave trade. This man who was so captivated by ending the transatlantic slave trade, he was saved by, by Christ, and, and God called him to do this thing, and people told him it was impossible. You'll never do it. You'll never end the trading of human beings. 
And it took William Wilberforce, listen to this, 46 years of going to the British Parliament and campaigning for the end of this injustice. He was weak on the outside. He was sickly in his frame. But listen to this. A friend, a, a contemporary who lived with him named James Boswell gave this assessment of William Wilberforce when he stood before the Parliament to give his speech. He said this, quote, I saw a shrimp mount the podium, but as I listened, he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale. Tiny, impish, and misshapen, he was sought to British society, not only bringing preservation, but enticement to Christ by his courageous life. Friend, you may look at our world and you may look at our country and the situation that's surrounding us. It's a lot like the book of Judges. You might look at it in your flesh and say it's impossible. And in your power and in my strength it is. But if God's Spirit resides in your life and in my life, friend, that's enough power right there to get a hold of this culture and to turn them back and to have hope that God will do it one more time, that God will pour out His Spirit and bring revival and restoration to this broken land. If we don't do it, who else is going to fight the battle? We've got the truth. We've got the Holy Spirit. Church, what are we waiting for? The time is now. Not by might or not by power, but by my spirit. Oh, God, help us. So that's Othniel, and I think that that teaches us God's deliverance through dependence. And I'm starting to break a sweat up here, which means pray for me. Next judge that we see on the list today is Ehud. And I think that Ehud teaches us about God's deliverance through disadvantage. Now the book of Judges begins to start like a sound like a broken record. Because we read that after Othniel moves off the scene, they had 40 years of peace. And what happens in the nation? Well, they fall back into sin again. And once again, God allows them to reap what they have sown. They are enslaved for 18 years by the Moabites and their portly potentate, a man named Eglon. Look what verse 12 says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because he had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he gathered himself, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went to defeat Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So in response to the people's cries and their oppression, Notice verse 15, God raises up another judge. This judge's name is Ehud. And the Bible points out a couple of attributes of his character. First, notice verse 15, his weakness. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of of Moab. Now stop and pause right there. Let me help you understand a little bit. The Bible is telling us here that Ehud is a lefty, which may not be a big deal to you and me as we first read it, but scholars tell us that if you actually get into the meaning of the text, what it really connotates more is a man who is handicapped in his right hand. We don't know exactly what happened in Ehud's life. Maybe he was lame from birth. Maybe he had an injury that disabled him. But the Bible says that 
Ehud had a, a unique and significant handicap, and that was he had only one hand that he could use, his left hand, which is kind of ironic because the Bible says he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. <laughs> so you have a left-handed deliverer from the tribe of the right hand. Keep in mind that in this time and culture, a southpaw was to be a curse. In the ancient world, the place of strength and honor was on the right. Most armies would never accept a left-handed man because it would disrupt the uniformity of the infantry march. And I would argue that if the Israelites were voting for their next deliverer, I think Ehud would probably have been the last man to be on the ballot. But God. Amen? His weakness. But then notice verse 16, His wiliness. His wiliness. I love this passage. Notice what the Bible says, verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. That's about 18 inches, uh, our measurement. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, you've got to pay attention to what the Bible's telling us here. Ehud could have let his deficiency discourage him from serving God. But instead, what happens is that God turns his liability, his handicap, his disability into an asset. God is clever enough here in this passage to use a South Paul Savior, if you will. And Ehud gains, the Bible tells us, an audience with King Eglon. He's assigned by his people, go to Eglon, take this money, this tribute, this tax that they were forced to pay, take it and pay him off. But the Bible says that before he goes to see Eglon, that Ehud takes a dagger and straps it to his right side. Why is that significant? Because Ehud has a plan to remove and assassinate this despotic king. And so he places a dagger on his right thigh because nobody would suspect a warrior to carry a weapon on that side. Remember, most soldiers in this day are right-handed. And that means that if they're going to keep their sword, it's going to be on their left side. So that when they draw it out in battle, it's easy for them. But the Bible says he puts the sword on this side. He's left-handed. When he goes into the court of, of the king, they're going to be looking for the right side. They're not going to be looking for the left side because to be a left-handed man was to be accursed. And they didn't use left-handed men in the army. Are you beginning to put this together? And so Ehud goes in to see the king. Look at what verse 17 tells us. The Bible says, And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, now, Eglon was a very fat man. Boy, the Bible's descriptive, isn't it? <laughs> and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And his attendants went out from his presence. So the king is sending out everybody so that he can have a one-on-one -on -one audience with Ehud. And Ehud came to him, verse 20, as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. He rose from his seat, and Ehud reached in his left hand and took the sword by his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed up over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Yes, you read that. That's in the Bible. And then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Forget Mission Impossible. 
Forget 007 James Bond. You never expected a story of espionage and assassination to be like this in the Word of God, but there it is. And of course, the Bible spares us none of the gory details, does it? But here is God bringing deliverance and bringing freedom to His people to throw off this despotic king in a way that was most unexpected. Who would have ever thought to use a left-handed, handicapped soldier to do in a despotic king? God does. Because God uses the weak things of the world, the despised things of the world, the foolish things of the world, the shameful things of the world. God uses those things that the world says, ah, we don't need that, we can't use it. Those are the very things that God uses to shame the powerful and the strong and those who are in charge. Now turn your attention with me to chapter 3, verse 26 and following. We'll get the rest of the story. The Bible says this, When they had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. In other words, he was going to the bathroom. Verse 25, And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, opened it, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Wow, what an incredible testimony. But listen to this. The Lord turned a disability into a possibility. And God is still the same God today. He can use your so-called weakness and move upon it with His strength. God can use your weakness. He can use your past. He can use your heartache. He can use your shame. God can employ your handicap for a greater purpose than you might imagine. God wastes nothing in your life. That stuff that you look back upon and you say, I don't know if you can salvage anything out of my handicap, broken life, but I'm telling you, if you avail yourself to God and you surrender it to Him, He can use it in a mighty way. It's exactly what He did in Ehud's life. This left-handed, handicapped soldier. Only God. You know, one lady that has embraced this kind of lifestyle, you've heard me quote her many times as Johnny Erickson Tata. You know, she spent almost all of her adult life in a wheelchair. And that's because she had a diving accident when she was a teenager. She broke her neck. And she was unable to leave that wheelchair. For the first years of her life after that accident, she struggled mightily to see God's purpose in her suffering. God, why did you allow my neck to be broken and for me to be a prison of my body? But as she began to walk with the Lord and as she submitted and surrendered her life to the Lord, Johnny began to realize that her pain was actually a platform from which God was going to use to minister to many. There's a saying that she has, because God loves me, He allowed me to be broken. You ever gotten to that point in your life? 
where you can see the blessing in God's brokenness in your life, that's where Johnny was. And that's where she is today. Because she had a unique testimony of being disabled, of being weak, of feeling useless, it instantly gave her a connection to all the hurting people around the world. All the handicapped people around the world. All the people who are the untouchables. All the people who feel like waking up every day and just ending it because they see no purpose, meaning, or hope in their life. It took somebody like that, God allowed her to be broken, so He could reshape her, reuse her, and be a beacon of hope. That's what my God does. Listen to what she said. She said, my friends, there are a million reasons why I am grateful God did not heal me of paralysis. She's thankful she's handicapped. Did you hear that? Here's why. She said, what if God had answered my prayers as a 17-year-old and released me from paralysis and returned me to a normal life of a woman on her feet? She said, there would have been no Joni book to give hope to suffering people around the world. And there would have been no Joni and friends or wheels for the world to do wheelchair distribution to impoverished people. I wasn't healed, she said, because God had plans for my life that are wider and higher and deeper and more profound than I could have ever imagined. We don't know what happened in Ehud's background, but I'm I'm telling you there was probably a day when he woke up and he looked at his lame hand and he said, God, I'm a mistake. You can't use me. I don't understand why I'm alive. And yet God raised him up in the book of Judges this South Paul Savior to go out and deliver his people from an evil oppressor. I'm telling you, friend, you may feel like that. You look at your past. You look at your handicap. You look at your life and you say, God, there's not much to it. I'm a mistake. I don't understand why you keep me alive. But by faith, I'm telling you, if you will trust God and you will surrender your handicap and your brokenness and your dependence to Him, He'll use you in a mighty and a powerful way. You are not a mistake. You are destined by God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. All things work together for good according to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Church, do you believe that today? If He used Ehud, what can He do in your life? And how can He use you? You see, I have a God who don't say oops. I have a God who never makes a mistake. I have a God who never gets up and in the throne room of heaven and and wipes anxious sweat from his brow and wonders, oh, what am I going to do? He's always got a plan. He's always got a salvation. He's always got a deliverer. His mercy endures. His truth is steadfast. Friend, I'm telling you, this God, He doesn't make mistakes. And He took a Southpaw Savior to deliver His people. God specializes in taking weak, broken, and outcasted people and using them in surprising ways. So if you're weak, outcast, broken, and have a past, guess what? You qualify to be used by an almighty God. So we see, number one, we see in Othniel, we see God's deliverance through dependence. In Ehud, we see God's deliverance through disadvantage. And then we got one verse left I want to show you. Number three, Shamgar. God's deliverance through devotion. God's deliverance through devotion. Verse 31, notice what the Bible says. And after him, speaking of Ehud, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath. Watch this. Who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. What a weird story. (laughs) 
just when you think you've got the Bible figured out, you go to the book of Judges, and God surprises you. But here we meet this third judge that God raises up, a man named Shamgar, and he teaches us God's deliverance through devotion. All we have is one verse about this man's life, but oh, what a verse it is. You see, what is significant about Shamgar is look at the weapon that he uses to defeat 600 Philistines. The Bible says he used an ox goad. Do you know what that is? An ox goad, listen to this, is a pole with a sharp metal point on the end of it used for prodding cattle and livestock. Sometimes I think I got spanked by an ox goad by my mom and daddy. It certainly felt that way sometimes. But you know what? If I got it, I deserved it. Shamgar uses something called an ox goad. And the question arises, why would you go to war with such a dinky weapon? Well, here's the reason. Because if you continue to read in the book, you find out that one of the things that the Philistines did to oppress the people is that they would confiscate the weapons. Kind of like what I think maybe our government is trying to do here in this nation. You see, it's easy to oppress a people to get your way or to pass an agenda when they don't have anything to fight back with. I'll just leave that there, and you can stew upon it. But the Philistines did that, and so the Israelites had nothing to fight with. No swords, no spears, no shields, nothing. All he had was an ox goad, something to prod the cattle with. And yet he devoted it to God, and God used him. The Bible said that he slew 600 of the Philistines. What an amazing judge, because what this man does is he simply looks at what he has on hand and says, Lord, if you can do something with this, it's yours. He didn't give up and throw in the towel because he didn't have the proper equipment. He simply gave the ordinary thing that he had over the Lord, and the Lord used it in an extraordinary way. And friend, that's what God is calling you and I to do in our lives. We may not have much money. We may not have worldly resources. We may not be the most talented. Uh, We don't have any American idols in here. But if we devote what little thing we do have to God, we might be surprised what He could do with it. That's why we do VBS. That's why we do basketball camp. God, if you can use a little orange ball to draw people to Jesus, then go ahead and do it. I'm available. Use me. I know how to bounce a ball. I'm losing my athletic ability, and I'm trying to hold on to it. But if I can teach a kid to bounce a ball, and if it will get him to listen to a message about Jesus, then so be it. So look at your life, child of God. What can God do with your little resources that you have? Your little gift, your little ability, your talent, the thing that uh, in your own power and own strength, it's not very much, but when God anoints it and God touches it and God uses it, it blesses lives and draws people to Jesus. You see, all he had was an ox goad. Oh, Moses, he stood there before, before God at the burning bush, and he said, God, i got to stop... I got a stuck, God, I got a stuck, God, you can't use me. I sound like Porky Pig. I got a stuttering problem. He said, Moses, but what do you have in your hand? He said, I have a rod. He said, and I will use that to deliver my people. And as he held that over the Red Sea, it parted, and they walked across on dry land. He gave what he had, his shepherd's staff. 
I'm telling you, there was David who stood before a mighty giant. He was filled with zeal for the Lord. You're not going to be talking smack about my God and my people and all he had was a slingshot and five smooth river stones and God used it like a scud missile and just nailed the giant on the forehead and gave him victory. I do remember in John chapter 6, there was a multitude who was hungry and the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how are we going to fix this? Uh, The people are hungry. And He said, all we got is one little boy's lunch. Five loaves and two fishes. And that little boy gave what he had and put it in the hands of Jesus. Jesus multiplied it and fed the crowd. And I do remember there was an apostle, Paul, who was beaten and chained up in prison for so many years. He couldn't get out and preach, couldn't get out and minister, couldn't get out and plant the church. But he looked and he said, God, I've got a pen. Lord, can you do anything with that? And the Holy Spirit anointed the hand and the mind of Paul and he began to write. He wrote Romans. He wrote 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Are you getting the point yet? God used a man in prison with a pen to put together 13 letters that you and I are still today getting a blessing out of. So look at your life. What little thing do you have? What insignificant gift can you devote to God and say, God, it ain't much in my hand, but if I put it in your hand, you can bless it, touch it, multiply it, and do beyond exceedingly and above all that I could think or imagine. That's my God, and we in the church have got to start believing in a delivering God, and an on-time God, an addiction-breaking God, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of power, and a God of grace. If we get a hold of this, friend, we may be living in dark days, but I'm telling you, if God's people get a hold of this, we can turn back the darkness. I believe it. I'm gullible enough to believe it. You may say that simple-minded preacher, but friend, that's all I know. But you know what? You know what our culture really needs? Our culture doesn't need to be pointed to us. They need to be pointed to Jesus. Less of me and more of Him. All I can do is make myself available. And if God sees fit to use me, and I'm telling you what, I'll be the first in line to give Him all the glory. Because there ain't nothing about Othniel or Ehud or Shamgar that was cool. There was nothing about them to brag or boast on. But what happened? God got a hold of them. There's nothing in us to brag or boast on. But when Jesus gets a hold of you, amen? Now I me to close by pointing out something amazing about each of these judges. You see, what each of these judges does is they point us to the ultimate deliverer who was going to be coming on the scene hundreds of years later. All these judges point to Jesus. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So look at this chart. Each one of these men was an unlikely hero, and yet they pointed in type and shadow to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, who would save the world from the oppression of Satan and sin. So Othniel, he, the Bible says he was anointed by the Spirit of God to fight for the freedom of His people. And just so, Jesus Christ at His baptism was anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's here to set you free today. Shamgar, He used the ordinary for the extraordinary. And likewise, isn't that the way Jesus did His miracles? He used everyday objects, loaves and fishes, empty water pots, empty fish nets, 
just put it in the hands of Jesus and watch him do his work. And then Ehud, Ehud took an, a disadvantage and made it work for deliverance. The South Paul Savior, the left-handed soldier, and yet how did Jesus deliver us? He took a disadvantage. He didn't conquer by strength, he conquered by weakness. How many of you know a Savior who saves His people not by conquering, but by dying? And that's what we see in this. Ehud, this, this weak person that God used to defeat a strong enemy, that's a picture of Jesus who in the ultimate form of weakness was humiliated, beaten, and nailed to a cross, and yet that was the means by which God brought deliverance to His people. God doesn't win through strength. God always wins through weakness. And when he rose from the grave in power and in glory, there was no denying he's the Son of God. And you know what? If he did it so many hundreds of years ago in Judges, I'm believing he can do it today. At 875 Montevista Road in North Carolina, in these United States, don't we need a touch of the Deliverer today?